This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hi, and welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films in theaters or on streaming platforms or wherever you can find them and compares them to films from days gone by of a similar genre, director, star, what have you, whatever connective tissue we can come up with. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm a multimedia journalist in Halifax with the Saltwire Network and the Chronicle Herald. I'm Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer. I have a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're taking a dip into the world of neo-noir, newer films that take on the conventions of the classic film noir genre and give them a modern spin, starting with a brand new film from Steven Soderbergh called No Sudden Move right after this. So, Stephen, we've done Defective Detectives about 10 episodes ago here on Lens Me Your Ears. And we've talked about a few uh, neo-noir. It's certainly a genre that has come along before on this podcast. Uh, I guess, you know, in order to talk about it, we should define what noir is. It's, I mean, neo-noir is indebted to the noir films of the 40s and 50s, which usually were crime dramas set in a morally opaque world with anti-heroes trying to find the least evil way to solve a problem. And they were frequently, almost always men, um, and they were foiled frequently by a femme fatale, a woman who they are in love with, but who betrays them. Uh, you know, in neo-noir films, however, those gender roles don't seem so cut and dried. And also very indebted to Hitchcock. I mean, I think we could have, in this episode, we're going to be mentioning Hitchcock again and again because he just keeps coming up. People still clearly love the way he told stories and his particular way around the the evil and the desperation that people do. Um, but we're, we're also, we're going to talk about No Sudden Move, which is available on Crave in Canada, the new Soderbergh, as you mentioned, written by Ed Solomon. But we're also going to talk about a bunch of the films on the Criterion neo-noir list. That's on the Criterion channel right now. And it also occurred to me, watching some of these, how we could have our whole show devoted to Criterion channel, <laughs> oh, like ongoing. Like we, there's so much sure. good that stuff on there. That could be a there. podcast in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. But but um, as I was going through their list, I realized we've already talked about movies like Brick, the American Friend, Farewell My Lovely, The Long Goodbye, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Body Heat, Blowout, Mona Lisa, and Manhunter. So half of their list is already taken up by <laughs> films we've already discussed on this podcast, which is, I think, clear that we are fans of these kind of morally ambiguous tales, you know? Yeah, they, there seems to be no end of them. And it's it's a great selection on the Criterion Channel in their new neo-noir collection, which, you know, it's, you have to watch them now or, you know, month from now they could be gone hard to say they, they tend to pull things off there with great regularity so they can introduce new titles and uh and there's a couple of them that have been a little hard to see over the years or at least see in decent quality copies so it's it's uh it's a great resource that way and there's a couple of films that i got to see that i've been wanting to revisit for a long time that are in that list of films um things like the onion field and the last seduction and and some other titles we'll be talking about uh, later in the show and it's it's interesting the range of the films that they have in that collection because some of them could be argued that they're not really neo-noirs at all. They're more just sort of contemporary thrillers or or maybe throwback thrillers, Hitchcockian, but not necessarily with that um, fatalistic uh, sense of doom that you get from a, from a really great uh, noir film. But um, it is interesting how how film noir did kind of segue into neo-noir almost almost immediately. The, the, the film noir era ends 
in the 19 early 1960s i think is the you know definitely the end there's a film called blast of silence that uh, an independent film about a, a contract killer whose case goes awry uh, filmed independently on the streets of new york great film big influence on taxi driver actually and uh and that film is worth seeing and then within a few years we start to see new films that borrow from that genre that just kind of came to a an end only a few years previously of course you know one of your favorite films chinatown is among them that's only a few years you know a decade or so after blast of silence and also the new cycle has started up all over again and uh often uh, often a very exciting and interesting uh series of films is you know if, if something gets tagged with the label neo-noir chances are pretty good i'm going to want to watch it to see uh, how it fulfills that uh, debt to those uh, those classic films for sure for sure and i mean you know let's face it we do like filmmakers who know their film history and if they're they're touching upon that it gives us more pleasure i think in the storytelling appreciating the storytelling uh, uh you know and i i'm yeah i'm totally with you Stephen. Uh, so let's talk about no sudden move which is certainly of this ilk. It's set in Detroit in 1954, and Kurt Goins, played by Don Cheadle, he gets offered a job fresh out of prison, the kind of work that involves heaters and a wad of cash for three hours of his time. He meets up with Ronald Russo, played by Benicio Del Toro, and Charlie, played by Kieran Culkin. A smart fella named Doug Jones, that's uh, Brendan Fraser, so good to see him on the screen again. He's pulling the strings. Now, these guys wearing ridiculous masks. <laughs> I love the mask. <laughs> so weird and creepy. Yeah, totally. I um, got my Halloween costume down for this year. <laughs> um, they invade the Wirtz home, terrorizing Matt and Mary, played by David Harbour and Amy Samitz, Simitz, uh, Simitz, I believe. And their two kids, Matthew Jr. and Peggy, played by Noah Jupe and Lucy Holt. Now, they want a, the number cruncher, Matt, who, who's an accountant at uh, at this company, to get a document from the safe in Matt's boss's office, which, you know, you might think is a pretty simple ask. But the operation totally goes south, which brings into the story a cop named Joe, played by John Hamm, and a gangster named Capelli, played by Ray Liotta, and his wife, played by Julia Fox. Now... Yeah, this is a, a very rich material for Soderbergh, who uh, in some of, you know, my favorite movies of his, uh, including Out of Sight um, and The Limey, is very, he's very much interested in crime dramas. And, and that's sort of his sweet spot, um, you know, and uh, and since he's, he's we did a whole episode on Soderbergh talking about how he went, he sort of retired for a while. He was going to do painting and produce television. And then he just, I guess, decided, no, there's too many stories I want to tell. So he came out of retirement and he's been prolific and never less than interesting in films like High Flying Bird and The Laundromat and Let Them All Talk. But this feels like this is really his material. This is the stuff he really loves to get his teeth into. What did you think of, of uh, No Sudden Move, Steve? Yeah, I really enjoyed this film. It, it does fall into line with uh, previous Soderbergh crime caper films. Uh, you know, I was kind of reminded a little bit of Criss Cross, which was, uh, or um, no, it's called The Underneath. Which oh yeah, his remake of the film noir Crisscross, um, which was an old Burt Lancaster, uh, Yvonne DiCarlo film from the 1950s, a terrific uh, crime thriller about an armored car heist, uh, and this is kind of in the same uh, in the in the same area, I guess. Although it is an original story, it's not a remake, uh, and it does uh, the the caper that uh, is undertaken in the film uh, does have some modern day repercussions. It does take place in the 1950s, I believe, the late 50s, uh, and. And uh, about the MacGuffin, as it were, of, of what uh, this crew is out to uh, to get, um, 
this folder, this mysterious green folder, uh, does contain information that would either revolutionize or destroy the car industry, depending on how you look at it. And, uh, you know, I love the fact that there is that kind of modern day connection. And I also like uh, the fact that the film has kind of this puzzle structure because we're only given information in bits and pieces as it proceeds along and we're we're in as much as much in the dark as as uh, characters like uh, like uh, like Cheadle and Benicio del Toro uh, as their characters are because we don't you know we, we kind of know they have to get something from this guy and they've got to hold his family hostage but we we don't know what the the repercussions are and we have to things have to go further up the chain and it's you know it, it's a familiar kind of bit of storytelling I, I thought of uh, one of the earliest neo-noirs is um Point Blank, the John Borman film with Lee Marvin, where he's trying to get his money and he has to make his way through mob underlings and and find his way up the chain to the the boss to get the money that he's owed from a uh, a caper that he pulled that he was betrayed for. So anyway, this is kind of similar where where we really don't know what's at stake uh, until you know until we meet the the big head honcho uh, at the end of the trail. So uh, I love that format and that kind of parceling out of information that, that keeps you kind of hooked as it goes along with some very engaging characters along the way. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and uh, let's talk a little bit about those engaging ca- ca- characters. I, I really love that late arriving is the awesome Bill Duke, who uh, who I I just genuinely like in in most things. He's he's also a filmmaker, but uh, but yeah, he, he's great here. And an uncredited Matt Damon playing uh, a Ned Beatty in Network kind of very role. much, yes. You know, basically giving chilling speeches across a boardroom table, like he is he is pretty much the the representative of evil corporate America, um, and he, he's terrific actually. And uh, I'm I, uh, I I did look on IMDb, and there's no sign of him at all associated with this film. So, so I spoiler guess, alert. I guess a little bit of a spoiler, but you know, I don't know. What, uh, I don't know if it's is, that big of a secret at this it, point. Is casting a spoiler alert? Maybe, maybe. Uh, I, I don't know. I sort of feel like whatever. If you're interested in seeing the film, uh, you know, you might be more interested if you know there's an actor of, of note, a prominence in, in the, you know, in the cast. But uh, yeah, I am a big fan of Soderbergh generally. I have a lot of of uh, a lot of enjoyment out of his confidence and his abilities and his affection for genre. Like that's something he shares with the Coen brothers. They they love they love genre and they love exploring ways in which to mix it up. I would say that Soderbergh, if he has an Achilles heel as a storyteller, it's like it's his formalism. He sometimes seems more interested in the structure of his films than their themes. And the major sort of stylistic flourish this time out is choosing to shoot with a very wide angle lens for most you know, if not all the shots, uh, complete with this sort of vignette filter. So you, as the camera pans, everything distorts in the background. Did you notice that when you were yeah, watching? Yeah, I, I, in my notes, I just wrote down fisheye lens. <laughs> yeah. It was a very, very, a very odd technique that, that some people have really found off-putting. Uh, and I'm not sure if he was just trying something out to see how it worked or it's not in every scene. I mean, of course, you notice it the most when people are moving and Part of me was wondering if he was trying to imitate the look of the early cinemascope lenses that when they first came out with, um, you know, at least in the 1950s, and they came out with widescreen. Um, 
uh, for mass consumption, uh, films like The Robe and so on. The early CinemaScope lenses had a bit of distortion that was present in the sort of the far corners of the frame. And uh, we certainly get that here, but I think it's a lot more noticeable here. It's definitely a different kind of lens effect that um, I haven't really heard a reason as to why he chose to oh. use that. I don't know if he's trying to mimic that look or not, but uh, it, it, it's odd. And maybe it gives you this kind of observer god's eye kind of feel as you're watching these uh, events unfold that's that's all i can think of yeah i mean i i I think that's it and i again it's it's a sort of formal quirk in the style of his movie which you got to wonder if it's so distracting is it bringing more to the story than it's taking away um my theory is that it drives home the fact that this is a story with characters moving through sort of dizzying moral uncertainty uh you know as the film digs deeply into noir um this it makes you slightly dizzy to watch it i mean if this was on a big screen it might be untenable like you might not be able to enjoy the film uh everyone here of course has to make decisions about the future and they they make them frequently right there on the screen because they're all in deep trouble and it it leads to life or death or uh, a tilting towards the dark or a tilting towards the light and uh and i i love that i think uh i think yes i think amy simitz uh she uh and i'm i'm apologize again for the butchering (laughs) of her pronunciation of her name but um yeah i think she she kind of gets to the core of it right when she's kind of she's a character who's kind of the in some ways is the conscience of the film because her husband is making a lot of decisions he's already we've already revealed that she that he is he's doing things that he shouldn't be doing and uh but she's well aware of the kinds of decisions he's making and uh and she's kind of she knows him better than he thinks she does and that becomes a big part of the story anyway i won't say any more about it but uh but i really liked her in this i really like david harbour who is <clears throat> i felt like he was underplaying some of the ham that he brought to recently to black widow well i, I mean i you know you tell him he's going to be in a comic book movie and then he's comes prepared to be in a comic book movie <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. and here he's he's definitely a, um he's a very put upon and kind of sympathetic even though he's uh you know he's cheating on his wife uh with the secretary and um or his boss's secretary i guess and and you know so he's you know he shouldn't be that sympathetic but it's david harbour so he's gonna bring some of that to the table and he's, he's certainly between a rock and a hard place through the entire film in in a way that uh you know does I guess engendered some amount of, of sympathy, but I, I found that the, the female roles in this film were very interesting as, as they were also trying to figure out what games all these men in their life are playing and how they can kind of come out of this, uh, you know, with, with something positive on their side of, of the equation, because, you know, it's, it, it kind of upends that whole, 50s trope of the the, the 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 classic household where the man is the provider and the woman takes care of the home or whatever and and here uh, the women in this film really need to take care of themselves as yeah, they quickly learn absolutely. as the as the film unfolds and that's certainly an interesting aspect of the film that I haven't read a whole lot about in what I've read uh, on the film but it, it's certainly a noteworthy aspect of 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 um, of no sudden move. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, also want to give a shout out to Don Cheadle, who is 
excellent here. He's he's kind of the first person we get to know, and in some ways, I guess that makes him the protagonist. But but it is a broad sort of ensemble. He doesn't uh, later in the film he has to share the screen with a lot of characters, but he delivers his lines with a kind of growl in his voice, and I don't think we've heard from him before. He's he's either either he's he's cultivating it as a an older actor now. He can kind of reach into his box of uh, of actorly tricks and he can pull this voice out. It, it's felt very authentic and really cool. Like I, I, it was a Don Cheadle bringing a gravitas that maybe we haven't uh, seen before. I'm trying to remember what was it devil in a blue dress? The, the Denzel Washington kind of, for lack of a better term, neo-noir kind of detective movie that he first kind of came to attention. I with. would say that's true. I yeah, feel like, I think like, it was, I feel like, like when we first saw him, he was in a similar kind of story, uh, which now it's a film I need to go back and revisit. Cause I haven't, I don't think I've seen it since it came out and, and he just floored everybody with his sort of, you know, supporting role in that film. Uh, so he seems to have a really good feel for this material and he just fits into this world so well. I mean, Don Cheadle is, you know, when has he ever been disappointing? I can't think of anything. Yeah, me neither. You know, he always brings something to a film that's worth uh, worth remembering. And and here, um, you know, he's he's certainly you know like he, like you say, he's got that world weary feel. You know, just out of prison, and and he's just kind of watching this thing unfold in front of him. He doesn't. He feels like he doesn't really have any control over the situation. He has to kind of see where it goes and and just navigate all the twists and turns that are being thrown at him and that's that's a lot of the pleasure in this film is watching him kind of dodge all the the new twists and and um obstacles that seem to pop up with every new development um you know as they just chase after this document um you know from from one person to another yeah you know for sure you know uh, thinking about don Cheadle's he has, of course, been a favorite of Steven Soderbergh from previous films, including the Oceans film, where he adopted a Cockney accent, which is still <laughs> right. pretty awful. I'm sorry. And I don't actually lay that on the feet of Don because he went for it. He went with it. But Soderbergh, the director, should have been like, you know, maybe that's not the right choice for this character. Because when I go back and watch the Oceans movies, all of which I really enjoy, um, it's it's a Dick Van Dyke level of Cockney. <laughs> I I thought it was like a weird homage to Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. doing a British accent in some other movie, but maybe I'm- Oh, maybe it is, and I didn't even pick up on that. Like one of those salt and pepper movies with Peter Lawford or something like that. <laughs> I, I feel like I'd seen something like it from Sammy Davis at some point in the course of his career. So. Well, that would make sense given the Ocean movie's uh, pedigree. Um, but- you know, well, I guess his Cockney accent there is the fisheye lens in a sudden move. It's an odd choice that we have to live with. And, uh, you know, but for me, it didn't, it didn't ruin the film anyway. So that, that's good. And, and it's also great to see a, a really great Ray Liotta performance as well. We haven't had one out of him in a while, I don't think. And, um, you know, as this kind of mid-level mob boss, uh, he's, he's alternately charming and terrifying and it, which is, kind of his sweet spot so uh again perfectly cast as i i think pretty much the whole film is i mean that's one of the geniuses about this film which i guess was made under covid restrictions is one of the you know first major productions to kind of be made you know with with masking and distancing behind the lens and everything like that so it's it's interesting to see you know the final product at long last Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast that takes a look at new films and compares them to films from days gone by. Today, we are on a neo-noir kick inspired by the recent release on uh, Crave uh, in Canada, the Crave platform, and HBO or HBO Max or whatever you've got in the United States 
of No Sudden Move by Steven Soderbergh, a new film that was uh, directed and produced under the restraints of COVID-19 and uh, a very fine crime thriller it is with an excellent cast. So um, in tandem with that, it turns out that the Criterion Channel, which uh, is certainly one of my favorite streaming platforms, is hosting a neo-noir program of films, uh, a series of, of thrillers and detective stories and dramas and and uh you know crime thrillers I, i'm kind of repeating myself here but 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 you know things from within that uh in that sphere of films by filmmakers like um john cassavetes and brian de palma and uh and it's a mix of sort of up-to-date uh up-to-date dramas as well as throwbacks to uh detective stories of days gone by and it's it's a really interesting batch of films um from something experimental like suture to something like a remake of the big sleep so it covers a wide swath of films and it's it's worth diving into they're they're not all top sh- top shelf films um you know it, it's funny you expect that from criterion but but they are bringing back some sort of in-demand titles and some things that have been hard to see over the years and then uh, we have to applaud them for that for sure and um to start with here's a film that um uh is is kind of straight up New York urban crime drama that sometimes gets lumped in with the whole black exploitation um, genre of films, but it doesn't really fit that label too too well. It's certainly been marketed that way uh, in years for home video and that sort of thing. But it's it's a pretty straight up crime drama about uh, a group of street level hoods who who decide to rob the the mob in Harlem of uh, their daily take of the numbers games. You know the the numbers running. Um, uh, that is basically collected by street level uh, collectors and enforcers, and then the, uh, the that money is funneled to the the Italian run mob by the uh, Harlem crime bosses. So uh, these guys are, are are seeing this as their ticket out. It turns out to be about three hundred thousand dollars is a, a daily take uh, for this. Uh, but the thing is, as the poster says, when you steal three hundred thousand dollars from the mob, it's not robbery; it's suicide. And uh, as it turns out, that turns to be a very accurate description of their plot. Stephen, um, you haven't mentioned the name of the movie. I haven't. It's a, <laughs> it's a across 110th Street. <laughs> across 110th Street. Yeah, um, everyone, anyone who's heard that song will know that title. <laughs> yeah, the the well, the, the title track uh, sung by Bobby Womack uh, by jazz trombonist J.J. Johnson, who did the soundtrack in collaboration with Womack. Uh, that theme song, of course, appears, uh, I think, as the title music in Jackie Brown, uh, which is um, Quentin Tarantino's adaptation of um, the novel Rum Punch, uh, his only adaptation of somebody else's work, and a, kind of a nod to those films of the 70s, especially with its star Pam Greer and Robert Forster, um, uh, based on the Elmore Leonard novel. Well, this this is the real deal, and this is where the song came from. It's a terrific soundtrack, and it really kind of fuels the drama as uh, we get into the Harlem underworld and uh, and that uneasy alliance between um, the crime bosses there and the Italian mob, who basically uh, you know like to think they're running the show, but uh, things aren't as cut as dried, cut and dried as they th- seem. And the um, the four criminals who are kind of on the run and in hiding are fairly sympathetic. They're just trying to get up from under and make a better life for themselves uh, with this what they thought would be a fairly bloodless and easy heist that does not go the way they planned. And of course, uh, that leads to. Um, uh, uh, an Italian mob enforcer played by Ant- Tony Franciosa uh, 
screaming for vengeance, basically, and asking for their heads. And and sort of the manhunt is on. Meanwhile, um, the cops are trying to find the perpetrators before the mob does, and uh, they're led by Captain Martelli, played by Anthony Quinn, and uh, a captain uh, played by uh, Captain Pope, played by uh, Yafet Kodo, who's um, you know a very by the book, straight laced. Uh, uh, cop who's dealing with Martelli, who's like an old soul veteran who I discovered is his character is supposed to be roughly the same age as me, even though he looks about 15 to 20 years older, in my opinion. And, uh, so, you know, and he's, you know, he's seen it all. He's been around the block a few times and he's also taken his, uh, occasional payout from time to time. So he's, he's not a completely above the board cops and that's what Yafet Koto has to, to deal with. And, and these are all elements, story elements we've seen in other crime dramas over the years, but here it comes together very um, convincingly with a um, a lot of handheld camera, a kind of a documentary feel. A lot of it's shot at night, uh, and uh, and it has that great score. So it's really worth checking out either on the Criterion Channel or it is available on uh, on home video as well if you want to track it down uh, that way. And it's it's one of those films that was overlooked for a long time just because you couldn't see it anywhere, maybe because of the music rights, but. Um, Definitely a fast-paced and well-cast uh, crime drama from the street. So uh, Barry Shear, who directed it, uh, didn't make a lot of theatrical films. Uh, he also made Wild in the Streets, which was the 60s kind of proto-hippie drama about uh, a rock star that becomes president when they lower the voting age to 14. And uh, it has the classic moment where they put acid in the water in the Senate and <laughs> in Capitol Hill. And, uh, and they pass this bill allowing teenagers younger teenagers to vote because everybody's tripping on LSD in uh, in Congress and the Senate. So anyway, if you've never seen that film, I highly recommend it. Uh, this is a lot more serious and is should be taken a lot more seriously. But after this, he went back to television for the most part. But uh, this is a very fine drama that uh, is worth seeking out. Um, and now you didn't get a chance to see this, Karsten, so... No, I did not, but it's uh, definitely on my list uh, amongst many on this uh, this Criterion Channel list of neo-noir. But I, one I did see was Night Moves from 1975. This is a second viewing for me. I'd seen it a few years ago. I'd heard the reputation of this film as being one of those lost 70s classics that everyone sh- who's interested in American cinema from the 70s should check out. And I'm so glad I did. And seeing it a second time, I was reminded of how cool Night Moves is. It's a. It's from 1975, as I mentioned. Arthur Penn with a terrific soundtrack from Michael Small, kind of a slightly jazzy 70s instrumentals. It's written by Alan Sharp with a great lead role for Gene Hackman. I mean, Gene Hackman, man, there's an actor that uh, you can't say enough good things about. He plays Harry Mosby, Los Angeles private detective, former football star, now kind of gone to seed. He's 40 years old. His job kind of makes him disreputable, but he seems like kind of a straight shooter. You can imagine him telling himself, I'm doing it because I want to help people and maybe get to some kind of truth in this life, make my life worthwhile. Um, He's looking for a redemption, but he has no idea how or where he's going to find it. And that's the problem. Um, And his job has him looking for the teenage runaway of a former screen queen. uh, And he discovers she... And then he discovers that his wife, played by Susan Clark, has been having an affair. So the film kind of balances this strange noirish world of his job with his kind of domestic drama in a way that makes it much more human and much more 
connecting, I think. Um, and uh, anyway, the, the trail of the girl leads Harry to Florida and her stepfather. And when he meets the girl, she's 16, played by Melanie Griffiths. Uh, he asks him how old he is. And he when he tell when he tells her, she says, you want things to say the same. And I want change. I want change. And it's this is a great <laughs> moment between them. There's a definitely a generational thing going on here under the surface, sort of the aging, older, corrupt and cynical Hollywood with various hangers on. And then this younger generation who we keep hearing are freaks um, who are maybe looking for revenge on the olds. It, you know, it, it's amazing how many levels this film works on. Um, and also a great role for Jennifer Warren as Paula, who's a really interesting character. This is the stepfather's girlfriend who connects with um, with Gene Hackman's character. Uh, yeah, it's 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 a total gem. And I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's a great Hackman role because he's he excels at playing these magnetic, charismatic, and yet completely a hole characters. <laughs> and it he he has that sweet pocket that he does time and time again. From I mean, you know, Popeye Doyle in the French Connection, he's a real jerk. <laughs> he's a mm-hmm. racist pig, uh, basically. Let's let's put it that way. And, and yet you can't take your eyes off him any time that he's in a scene or on the screen, and and then, or then you go and later to something like the Royal Tenenbaums and he's, you know, same thing, you know, he's a compelling character who you would kind of hate in real life. And, and I think Harry's a little softer around the edges, uh, Harry Mosby in, in night moves, but, um, but you know, he's, he's, he's still kind of a, a jerk uh, to those around him when he, you know, and, and fairly selfish in his, uh, in his emotions and, and how he treats other people and how he treats his wife. And, um, but it, it's great that he has that self-realization, that the, the realization that he needs to turn his life around in the middle of this case and in the middle of his wife uh, either falling in love with another man or at least seeing another man and, and knowing that the fault is all his for the way things have turned out. And uh, I, I like that balance here. I, I find it's it's not completely too much to the a-hole side of things as it might be in French Connection. Like here, uh, he's, he's a little more rounded out, a little more human. And, uh, you know, we really feel some of the, tragedy that he feels as the as the film goes on and um and that's you know that's why hackman is so revered as an actor all these years later yeah no absolutely and you know he is retired and i hope he's enjoying his retirement but uh we miss him we definitely miss him um so let's move on into some of the other films here on the Criterion Channel's neo-noir. Uh, the Eyes of Laura Mars is a film on that collection. And this is the one I feel like is really a bit of a stretch because it has a genuine supernatural element, which feels a little out of place for a neo-noir. But it's directed by Irvin Kirshner, later, of course, of Empire Strikes Back fame. Uh, it's a trashy thriller. And uh, that's a good way to describe. Yeah, this. I would say it's worth watching if you have a genuine passion for 70s American film in in the the way it tried to capture the zeitgeist. Um, it is. Yeah, it's it's was originally, I gather, imagined as a Streisand vehicle because it was produced by John Peters, who was famously Streisand's hairdresser. And she does sing the theme song. Yes, she does. Uh, and it was written by John Carpenter, which will maybe draw some John Carpenter fans to it. Uh, but the film is. Uh, hopelessly dated uh, entertaining but not great uh basically uh faye dunaway plays laura mars she's a hot fashion and fine arts photographer in an annie Leibovitz kind of vein and uh she starts to see murders in sort of visions of murders and it's she's looking through the eyes of the murderer and uh, she's surrounded by men of course it's one of those whodunits where sort of where the, the question of who's the, the killer immediately is up front and center and of course it's not 
too hard to figure out who it is. But uh, Rene Aubergenois is in it, Raul Julia, Brad Dorf, and Tommy Lee Jones. So a pretty solid cast of American character character actors here. Uh, and uh, yeah, and uh, then you know you get you get scenes of <laughs> you get scenes of of like the photo shoots in, in Columbus Square where they've turned over cars <laughs> all burning, and these these models in ankle length furs and lingerie are pulling at each other's hair, and it's so ridiculous. Uh, and and her uh, Laura's apartment is enormous, covered in mirrors. Uh, and then there, she has a giant uh, rooster in the middle of the like a like a sculpture right in the middle of her living room. It's so bizarre. Uh, yeah. So for those things, for the production values, I'd say it may be worth seeing, but it's not good. No, it it's not. But it's it's so seventies. Uh, <laughs> you know, if you if you're just in the mood to watch something that sums up the mead decade in in a nutshell and it it does have kind of a dream cast i mean it you know brad Dourif i can watch in anything and here sure. he's here he's a very convenient red herring uh, <laughs> as he often is in uh-huh. films uh of, of this uh era and and he's he's terrific and and it's great to see i mean renee aubergenois i mean most people probably know him from deep space nine um and where he played the, the shapeshifter but but you know he had you know, he's in a lot of Robert Altman films where you basically get a glimpse of him in the background or something where he's always part of this ensemble thing. And here he actually gets a lot more to do than he normally would in a lot of his films. I guess some people would know him from Benson. Sure. That's where I first saw <laughs> him, I remember. The sitcom. But um, but but here he actually gets to play a, a kind of an intriguing and very larger-than-life character as, as her, I guess, manager uh enabler fixer whatever you want to call his him. hair is larger than life yes his yeah. hair is definitely larger than life and 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 young tommy lee jones is always a good thing he's, he's always a kind of a compelling character but uh actor but but yeah the, the the story becomes pretty obvious pretty early on but it does have a great disco soundtrack and it's it's like if you turned a cocaine mirror into a movie it would be the eyes of Lord <laughs> essentially. Nicely done, see you and I will. I think that deserves to be on any re-release poster uh, tagline. Um, now, you saw The Onion Field. I did not. But do you want to say a few things about that? That came out in 1979. It's also on the Criterion channel now. Yeah, it's this This one is one that's sort of been um, a little hard to see at, on video. I think I saw it on VHS way back when. And then it just kind of vanished. Either it was a rights thing or whoever. It was It was produced by, I think, a British company. And maybe that uh, the, that kept it under lock and key for a while. And it's, it's actually a very uh, compelling drama about a, a true murder that happened where a policeman was killed by a couple of hoods who kidnapped a couple of police officers and took them out to the middle of nowhere, like around Bakersfield and left them in an onion field, hence the title. Um, except one of them gets away. Um, Carl Hedinger, played by John Savage, manages to escape. Um, and sadly, Ted Danson as Ian Campbell, the bagpipe playing uh, partner, um, uh, sadly is, is the one killed by the hoods. And once you get past the actual crime, a lot of the film is about the retribution and, and the trial that goes on and on. And, and, um, you know how the 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 partnership between the two criminals kind of goes awry in on death row and and uh it's 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 a really intriguing drama about the after effects of crime and and the the, the sort of ripple effect of how it affects other people and also the kind of the weird parallels between crooks and cops is also nicely uh, portrayed over the course of the film it's based on a book by joseph wamba who also wrote the screenplay um who uh, had a number of success, uh, successful screenplays, things like The Choir Boys, and I think the, the, maybe The Laughing Policeman might have been his. I'm not 100% sure. Oh, uh, the, the, 
the um, the, the new centurions with George C. Scott. I mean, that the, he's an ex-cop who made this kind of his stock and trade. But uh, they always had that kind of note of realism about them due to his own um, past uh, working as as a police officer. And and but this one has some great performances. Uh, like I said, Ted Danson and John Savage as the cops, and uh, James Woods and Franklin Seals as the the two criminals who. Um, who basically uh, kidnap and take the life of uh, one of the officers, and 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 James Woods is super oily and creepy here. You, <laughs> as, don't, you don't say, you know, uh, you know, like as we just saw him in Night Night Moves. Here he's uh, this, and this was kind of a breakout role for him after a number of supporting uh, performances like that one in Night Moves. Uh, this is the one that really propelled him to the next level. And despite what you might think of him now, uh, you know, he was a, a pretty great character actor. And and leading man for a spell, and and here he just uh, you know every time he grins, it just kind of get this chill down your spine. But his character does have a bit of a development later in the film, so there and uh, it's kind of compelling to watch. Uh, but he is um, you know as as Greg uh, Powell, the the kind of guy who is too smart for his own good, who thinks he knows every angle uh, when it comes to committing crimes. Uh, he's you know he's just uh, no perfect for the role. Awesome. Well, I, again, look forward to seeing that when I get the chance, Stephen. Um, now, before we move on to our uh, our next segment, we should say a few words about Cutter's Way. Now, this is maybe the biggest discovery of our episode this week. Um, it's from 1981, directed by Ivan Passer, uh, from the novel Cutter and Bone by Newton Tho- uh, Thronberg, and written by Jeffrey Allen Fiskin. Now, I, had, I sort of knew about Cutter's Way, I think, through just as one of those, again, lost 70s films, although it's it's the 80s. It feels it still feels kind of like that set tradition of 70s American cinema. It has an astonishing screenplay. You can tell right away these are characters with a deep shared history talking but not actually saying what it is that they feel. They're talking around stuff in a way that just I love the dialogue in the film. You get it right away. There's a love triangle at the center of it. Richard Bone, played by Jeff Bridges, is quietly in love with his friend Moe, played by Lisa Eichhorn, even as he's sleeping with other women. Now, Moe is an alcoholic and the wife of uh, Richard's pal, Alexander Cutter, played by the fiery John Hurd, a Vietnam vet managing his wounds and his bitterness with a lot of humor, noise, and bad decisions, let's say it. So, one night, Rich sees something in the street, and the next day, the body of a teenager is discovered. He connects the death to a wealthy local figure named J.J. Cord, and this inflames Cutter, and when the girl's older sister gets involved, they plan to extort, uh, sort of an extortion racket to blackmail Cord, and when he pays up, take the money to the cops. I mean, it's a bonkers plan. It's pretty clear that Rich isn't interested in going through with it, but Cutter isn't interested in in giving up, and he's not interested in being faithful to Mo. so there's all this stuff going on in the background. Um, and that's all I'll say about the plot, but the it's rooted in these amazing lived-in performances. The connection between these three characters really sustains it, even though they all resent each other for one reason or another. There's all this stuff going on. Um, now, of course, John Hurd has sadly since passed away since this film. He's an actor who I've seen in dozens of roles, but none of them were as potent as he is here. It's astonishing, actually. I didn't know he was capable of this kind of a part. Uh, and it's a, maybe a little bit sad. I mean, I mean, I probably haven't seen everything he was in, but that he never got another chance to play a part like this is the thing. Um, you know, it has a lot to do, the film has a lot to do with the rambling disillusion of America, you know, in, in, that, in the era. And there's this intimacy in the performances 
yeah, I'm thinking about maybe finding a buying a copy of this for my my library. That's that's how much I enjoyed it. It's it's so good. It's a terrific film, and I remember at the time that it came out, it was kind of buried by the studio, um, and there were also you know stories about how the editing of the film suffered. Uh, you know, once I don't know if it was taken out of Ivan Passer, the director's hands or not, but um, but uh, you, you can sense some awkwardness in the way the story sort of fits together. But the film succeeds in spite of all of that. I find it because it does focus on the characters to such a great degree, and they are such such um, you know fascinating and and layered characters, uh, and especially portrayed by Heard and uh, and Bridges. And it's uh, you know, and eventually, it's not really about. The mystery, as it were, of uh, of who killed uh, the the teenager from the start of the film. It's it's really about how these people live their lives and how this disruption that comes into their lives kind of motivates them to uh, to do the things that they do. And and just watching how the how they do it in 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 remark contrast between Cutter and Bone, um, which was the original title. Passer came out of the uh, Czech New Wave, I believe. So. Uh, you know, he really, his focus really is on the characters in to such a degree that, uh, you know, it just doesn't really feel like any other film that you can think of. It just has its own uh, unique flow and um, and focus. And, and I really enjoyed that, the, the way it kind of drew us into their world. Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. Right, so here we go. The third segment of Lens Me Your Ears. This uh, week, we're talking about neo-noir films, starting with uh, No Sudden Move by director Steven Soderbergh, and now moving into films, a number of them available uh, at the Criterion Channel. They have a neo-noir kind of package right now, and uh, a lot of awesome movies. Uh, and we're going to talk about in the next segment, we're going to start with Body Double. Now, this is a film I remember from my teenage days. I remember even at the time feeling kind of dirty after having watched it. And I think that's what <laughs> director Brian De Palma is aiming for. Like he is examining voyeurism in culture. And it's uh, just like you were talking about how um, the eyes of Laura Mars. I mean, that's really also kind of doing the same thing. Voyeurism is a big deal. Uh, trying to implicate us as part of the, uh, you know, wanting to watch and it being so 70s. This is the 80s version of that, I think, to some degree. It's very much, it's very much over the top. I'm a fan of Brian De Palma, but this is not a film of his that I go back to often. And in fact, I didn't go back to for our chat. So, Stephen, <laughs> what did you feel watching it again after, After I guess it's been a while since you've seen it too? Yeah, well, for one thing, it features one of my least favorite leading men, Craig Wasson, who uh, in the early 80s was a kind of a hot number for a run of a few films anyway. Uh, he, you know, he, he made a big splash in a... Um, a, I think it was a Vietnam War film called Go Tell the Spartans. Oh, yeah, um, sure. Burt Lancaster, uh, late 70s kind of film. And that got him some attention. And then he was in things like the film adaptation of Peter Straub's Ghost Story and 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 this film and uh, in Body Double and, and a few other films. And I, I just, 
I didn't even like him at the time. You know, like I just there's something about him that, and the fact that he looks so much like Bill Maher doesn't help his case too much. But um, uh, he had that certain wassonality, as I like to say. But uh, you know, but this is this is this might be the biggest role that he was handed over the course of that career. I mean, this film got a lot of attention, you know, because it was. I you know, I think even Brian De Palma even wanted to make like a rated X uh, thriller, uh, which of course. You know, Columbia was not about to let him do. Uh, so he tried to get to, as close to that as he could by having part of the story set in the the porn world and and so on. And the film got a lot of attention for being sort of risque, especially coming on the heels of um, uh, the. Oh, I'm trying to remember the name of his previous film, the one with Michael Caine, Dress to Kill. Dress to Kill. Yeah. So he was yeah. trying to basically uh, build on the notoriety of Dress to Kill in a lot of ways um, by again going back to the Hitchcock well by kind of combining rear window with vertigo uh, and he'd already done vertigo uh, a tribute to that uh, with obsession in the 1970s so he's already going back to a well that he'd drawn from previously um, but uh, by including that uh, rear window voyeuristic uh, theme into it and uh, it's it's an uneasy match I mean basically like Craig Wasson plays this uh, down at his heels actor named Jake who suffers from claustrophobia. So instead of vertigo, he's got claustrophobia and uh, he's, he's, he's in some low rent uh, vampire film and he has a freak out when he's supposed to be in a coffin playing a vampire and uh, freezes on camera and he gets fired from the film. And so he's, you know, he can't get work. He's got no money. And then this friend of his, uh, this kind of sleazy actor named Sam played by Greg Henry, who basically always plays sleazy friends uh, who are, better left avoided um he comes up to him with an offer to a house sit in this uh fairly impressive uh hollywood hills stilt house uh and uh, and shows him that uh if he uses the the telescope that's um on the balcony he can watch this woman across the valley do this strip tease in her bedroom like clockwork every night at, at midnight gee this couldn't be a setup could it yeah um and then uh and then he finds out all these details about her abusive husband and he decides to follow her and try and protect her. Um, and there's this kind of crazed uh, sort of Native American character who's following her. He steals her purse and he's threatening her. And so he's like on the lookout for this dude. And uh, it's all done in this kind of Grand Guignol high opera Brian De Palma style, tons of long takes and moving cameras and impressive tricks that don't necessarily add to the story, but they kind of make you go, wow, that was an impressive camera trick. But the, the, they don't necessarily bring much uh, to the table in terms of uh, deeper meaning or, or um, you know, propelling the story forward. And, uh, and then at some point, he becomes involved with this uh, porn actress played by here she is again. Melanie Griffith is back for another film in this series. And... Um, he notices her dancing in a film looks a lot like the dancing of the woman in the uh, house across the way. Uh, and he's kind of putting things together that, that maybe things aren't exactly what they seem. Uh, and in the middle of it all, he decides to uh, try his luck at becoming an actor in porno movies, uh, you know, partly for the gig, partly to keep tabs on Melanie Griffith's character. And it does lead to this delirious music video sequence featuring Frankie goes to Hollywood, or at least Frankie anyway. Uh, and they do uh, this kind of very tame porn S&M sequence with um, Frankie being carried around and singing, relax, don't do it, which was, of course, such a huge hit at the time. Um, and it's an impressive sequence, but um, 
again, it's just De Palma kind of showing off, and and it, definitely a case of the whole being less than the sum of its parts in this case. And, but it is extremely watchable just for its sheer uh, gusto, I guess, of the filmmaking. Uh, but y- you will feel kind of worse the worst of the wear after you've watched it, especially if you think give the plot any thought at all. Um, uh, it, it falls apart almost instantly when you try to put this scheme together in your head and how uh, Craig Watson's Jake could have been dumb enough to fall for any of it. Um, but there you go. Uh, Body Double, it's, it's, it's a relic of its time in a lot of ways. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's... Uh, maybe best left there? Maybe best left there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a film that we did watch, uh, Trouble in Mind from 1985, uh, I think actually has maybe more appeal for uh, modern audiences. And it was written and directed by Alan Rudolph. And Rudolph has had a fascinating career. He directed, he's directed 21 features and one documentary since 1972. And he also served at the knee of Robert Altman, working as an AD on The Long Goodbye and California Split and Nashville. And his features, his most recent was Ray Meets Helen in 2017. So, you know, they've occasionally popped up and garnered attention from the critical, you know, world and, and even on from audiences. But but a lot of kind of disappeared. Uh, this is one of his most well-remembered, a strange fantasy noir about a group of characters who cross paths at a diner in a place called Rain City, shot in Seattle, which I think is a, is appropriate. Uh, Johnny Hawk Hawkins, played by Chris Christopherson, is a former cop who just got out of jail. His old flame, Wanda, played by Jean-Vierre Bujold, runs the diner. Um, and of course, the first thing he does is assault her, which uh, earns him a punch, but that hardly seems like a reasonable exchange. He's a really nasty piece of work. Um, there's also a couple, Coop and Georgia, played by Keith Carradine and Laurie Singer, who have a baby named Spike and have come to the city from the boonies. Coop wants to get into the crime world, and right away he gets a chance to hold up, uh, do a hold up with Solo, played by Joe Morton, who's terrific and is kind of a philosophical thief. And while Coop keeps getting deeper and deeper in the crime world, you can tell because his haircut keeps getting increasingly outrageous and a lot of eye makeup as we go along. <laughs> it's part of the fun of watching it, uh, yeah. watching him. Just his look get more and more extreme. Yeah, more and more eighties. Um, you know, Georgia wants them on straight, stay on the straight and narrow, and she gets a job as a waitress. And of course, she gets closer to Hawk, who is hanging around at the uh, at the diner. You know, it's certainly not predictable. There's there's a lot of stuff about good and evil, about the attraction of both on one's soul. I don't think it all works, and the men do behave terribly. You really start to feel bad about George's options. But I really love the ending. It has an objectively <laughs> hilarious shootout in the ending. And there's all this kind of like in the backgrounds of scenes, military presence in the city, tamping down protests. There's this like political edge to everything. Um, yeah, it's... Um, it's a bizarro film in a way. I don't think it compares to much that I've seen. Um, what did you make of it, Stephen? Yeah, I love the alternate universe feel of this film. Like it's it's, it's obviously not meant to be taken seriously. It's completely absurd. Um, there's there's slapstick comedy in places that you wouldn't expect to find it. Certainly not in a Chris Christopherson movie. And uh, you know, and and Rudolph is is kind of toying with audience expectations in, in a really intriguing way. Uh, from start to finish, and and, and uh, I like the, the sort of the playfulness that's uh, in effect here. The fact that it's set in this kind of 1984-esque totalitarian universe called Rain City, which is uh, filmed in Seattle, but appropriately enough for for Rain City, I guess. And and the, you know the outsized characters like, um, well, I mean Divine, uh, 
appearing out of drag in one of the very few times in her career uh shows up as a crime boss named hilly and uh, and and just walks away with every scene totally uh, is terrific you know another great reason to watch this film and and marianne faithful on the soundtrack yeah singing the, the title theme and some of the other songs it just it's playing with all the conventions in a way that uh would be even extreme for altman i think so and and that's that's a lot of the fun of it i mean it 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 does it feels like ahead of its time and dated at the same time mainly because it does try to go for a retro feel everybody drives old cars you're not really sure if it's meant to be present day or in the past and the fact that it's in this kind of alternate reality uh makes it even that much more foreign uh, but that's also what makes it fun to watch because you know you never know what's coming next and and uh you know christopherson plays it pretty straight through the film and he's probably the only one that does so um you know, he's kind of the anchor for the whole thing. And and it's just, uh, yeah, it's just a joy from start to finish. Yeah, absolutely. Now, we only have a few minutes left of Lens Me Your Ears for this episode. I want to give nods to two more movies on the Criterion channel. Now, The Bedroom Window from 1987, directed by Curtis Hansen. Uh, and I, this first time I'd seen it, it's very, again, very indebted to Hitchcock. It is wildly implausible, but not unentertaining. And I think partly due to the cast, especially the, the female cast in the film, Elizabeth McGovern is terrific. Um, Isabelle Huppert is really good. Um, uh, Steven Gutenberg is out of his depth. He's basically trying to do his best Tom Hanks, but he just I just don't buy him as a character who Isabelle Huppert would be even interested in. But it's yeah, it's about um, he's having an affair with Huppert's character. She's the boss's wife. Uh, one night she sees a murder outside the window, but because she's not supposed to be there, he pretends to have seen it. And then he gets deeper and deeper into trouble. Um, it's I really love the Baltimore locations. I'll say that much about it. Because uh, there's a bar that ha- called Nevermore with the, you know, Edgar Allan Poe connection um, that I liked. And oh, and Maury Chaykin is in it briefly at the end. <laughs> and Wallace Shawn as a lawyer. But that, you know, I, I don't think it's a flawed. It's a flawed picture. Yeah, it's, it's funny watching uh, Curtis Hansen getting his feet wet with uh, this kind of film when he would obviously excel with it uh, with L.A. Confidential uh, years later. Um and yeah, Gutenberg, like Craig Wasson, hard to take seriously in a kind of serious role. And he's he's you know I you know we're, I think we're supposed to feel sympathetic towards him, but he's so clueless, and uh, and and you know just makes all the wrong decisions at every turn. Uh, it's 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 hard to feel much of anything for him, and I think that puts it at a puts us at a distance from a lot of what happens in this film. I mean, it, it's you know it's 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 fun to watch in the sense that you know we get what it's referencing the, the sort of the man the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time thing that was kind of a, a favorite uh, hitchcock storytelling um, device but but here you, you know you kind of wish he would just get caught by the cops or something <laughs> like, we don't really care if he's able to kind of pro, you know prove his innocence or not and that's kind of a big hindrance and and uh you know but as you say is isabel huper and uh, and elizabeth mcgovern is another a- actor i'm quite fond of uh do acquit themselves rather well in this story. And there are a couple of unexpected things that happen along the way. So it, it's not a complete washout, but, um, you know, it, it really depends on your Gutenberg tolerance. I absolutely agree. And he's, he's just not sexy or attractive enough, I don't think. I just don't quite buy him uh, at all. But, uh, you know, he did have some chops as a comedic actor. So anyway, 
just a miscasting. Uh, finally, we want to mention The Last Seduction from 1994. Uh, these days, director John Dahl is best known for his work on prestige dramas like Billions, Yellowstone, and Evil. But he got to start making stylish neo-noir movies like Red Rock West and the underappreciated classic The Last Seduction. Um, I, w- I found this film really a delight, watching it again, anchored by a spectacular performance by Linda Fiorentino, who sadly, I think, ran afoul of Hollywood in the 90s and, and decided it wasn't worth sticking it out, which is too bad because she is so good. Um, she uh, she is Bridget and lives in New York and is in sales. And her ass of a husband, Clay, played by Bill Pullman, not one of my favorite actors <laughs> we've talked about before. Good at playing an ass. Yes, he is. Uh, he's a drug dealer. Uh, now, right away, you know. Uh, I mean, you know, I just don't think he's all that compelling as this criminal mind. Um, but, uh, you know, it does make him plausible as a bit of a chump that she can take advantage of. And it's very much a, a film about how she takes advantage of chumps, including Peter Berg's character, Mike, and uh, a bunch, you know, as she runs away with a bunch of money. Uh, there is a delightful lightness to the film, jazzy score, a lot of wit. And uh, it, it really addresses systemic sexism that women has had to live with, even in these kinds of movies we're talking about today, Stephen. And, Very uh, much. And it is amazing to see her turn the tables on this, uh, on all the men in this movie. And it is, I, I think, a genuine classic. Yeah, it really is wonderful. And John Dahl excels at this kind of material. Um, you know, he, he went on to make... Uh, I think maybe this is after he made Red Rock West with Nicolas mm-hmm. Cage, uh, a similar thriller, and also Kill Me Again with Val Kilmer. Uh, you know, he, taking these classic forms and 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 giving them giving them a modern spin, and 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 here by by putting out Wendy Croy, uh, <laughs> the the Linda Fiorentino character, well, that's her pseudonym, but putting her front and center, uh, you know, just makes for some great storytelling. And and they and he and Fiorentino seem to be in cahoots. They know exactly what kind of film they're making. Uh, you know, she's definitely giving off this Veronica Lake kind of vibe and uh, this Lauren Bacall kind of feel in her character. Even I think she's even meant to look a bit like Lauren Bacall with her hair and and some of her fashion choices. And, uh, you know, as she's just putting one over on every man she comes across. And, and it's just a delight to watch. Uh, she proclaims that she's a total effing bitch and, and uh, you know, and proud of it and then proceeds to show us why. And and it's, it's great, you know, and Peter Berg is the, the dumb cluck in the small town outside of Buffalo that uh, she kind of sets her sights on with laser precision. <laughs> you know, she just knows exactly how to pull this guy's strings and uh, we never get tired of watching her do it, you know, and at some point he you know, he complains about being treated like a sex object. She just tells him to enjoy it while it lasts. Um, <laughs> you know, she's just in control all of the way. And that's the end of our episode this week on Neo Noir on Lends Me Your Ears. Uh, we've really enjoyed digging into these films. Uh, uh, most of them available on the Criterion Channel, and of course, the uh, the first one, the Soderbergh film, is on Crave here in Canada. We are available if you want to reach out to us. We have a Facebook page, and we are on Twitter at Lends Me Your Ears. And Stephen, you have a Twitter uh, account. I do. I'm at ns underscore s c o o k e. 
My Twitter account is named after my blog, Flaw in the Iris. Many thanks to CKDU for the studio facilities and for airing this show every second Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. And also many thanks to the producers of Lens Mirror Ears at the Village Soundcast Network and for all that you guys do. Uh, Thank you, listeners, for uh, tuning in and uh, allowing us to ramble on about movies for an hour. Really appreciate it. We'll talk to you again soon. Lensmere Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to Podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production.